Hello and welcome back to another episode of Armchair Analyst, the only podcast featuring haircuts worse than Dominic Calvert-Lewin. My name is Cameron McDonald, and I spent the last three years working as an FA licensed intermediary here in the UK. My co-host, Rupert Meadows, has written and broadcast about all things football on platforms such as TalkSport Radio and Giving Sport. But above all else, we're fans. Yeah, thanks for that, Cam. Although I can't help but feel like that haircut worse than Dominic Calvert-Lewin's was a personal attack. Um, but moving on, what unbelievable weekend of football straight from the start of the game week. Goals galore and just a fantastic schedule of fixtures for the neutral. I don't know how best to describe it other than the fact that, you know, you get those moments where you just think to yourself, I really love the Prem. And I got mm. like three or four of those just in this one weekend alone. Oh, 100%, yeah. Lots to cover. So why don't we get stuck right in with the first game we got to enjoy, which was Everton hosting West Brom at Goodison Park. Seven yeah. thriller. A seven-goal thriller and three of those uh, by Dominic Calvert-Lewin, who I hope won't be too put out, um, put, put out by my haircut comment. I was only commenting that my haircut is indeed worse than his. Um, I do think he's got a bit of a questionable 1980s jerry curl type thing going on. So it's not a strong look. I think we yeah. can all agree that. Maybe uh, he could use his goal bonus to, to head down to the hairdressers. Um, but yeah, no, Everton... Um, you know, what a great game from them. Five goals. Definitely took them a moment to hit their stride in the game. But once they did, they were just all over West Brom. It could have been more than 5-2, uh, I thought, all things considered. Um, you know, Dominic Calvert-Lewin is the guy who is just benefiting so much from this this telepathic connection that's already been established by Ricarlison and, and, and James. Um, and it's just that they're wonderful to watch. Those two just creating chances, pinging it through, the through balls, the over the top. Um, and, and this was an exhibition, basically, from them. Yeah, it's really fun to watch, as you said. And I think the main point to make is that they're such different players and that contrasts so well. And it takes a really good manager to get two such different players to gel so well so quickly. And you've got to take your hat off to Carlo Ancelotti because the attack that he has formed is really something to behold. Yeah, and this is true. They are very different kinds of players. You know, Ricarlison has always maybe lacked a little bit of that wider creative sort of long ball sort of thing, whereas James is not a slow player, but he's not necessarily going to be the person to sprint down the wing and beat a man. And so having those two both sort of cover each other's weaknesses, as it were, means that they have so many options in that final third. Not to mention that Calvert-Lewin himself is playing with huge amounts of confidence. I mean, he scored the three goals and he was given a lot of you know help, but he still needed to finish them. Um, and I just think Everton, we, we spoke about them being seventh last week, but who knows? I mean, they, they really could be, you know, taking some big scalps. Absolutely. I mean, they still haven't had a proper test and they do have Liverpool coming up in the next couple of game weeks. So, you know, we'll see how that plays out because, you know, it's just exciting to, to think about what they're going to be like against a top three outfit. Yeah, for sure. Although I would maybe slightly push against Liverpool in being a, a proper test. Not because I think Liverpool aren't a difficult team to play, but in that it's a derby. It's and derbies are always yeah. kind of in this weird sort of cosmic vacuum where things can go differently than they usually would. I, I would say that them playing a Man City or a Chelsea or a, or a United or an Arsenal is probably a, a better test of how they fare against the top teams. Because I could see, in theory, Everton beating Liverpool and that that wouldn't convince me personally that they are now one of the top sides because, as I say, it is a derby and anything can happen in those games. Yeah, very true. I think um, even in like the dark years of uh, the last couple of seasons for Everton, they still managed to grind out 1-1 draws against Liverpool every now and then. And you obviously you yeah. always wonder why and how. Yeah, yeah exactly. The, the odd result. Um, but yeah, I think it'll be really interesting to see how they do fare against these bigger sides because... 
you know, today, uh, sorry, sorry, this, this, this game even, they were helped out a little bit by the fact that Kieran Gibbs just lost his cool really early on and punched James Rodriguez. Um, which was bizarre and almost more bizarre than that was the fact that Slavin Bilic charged in to defend him and also got sent off. Yeah, I mean, I mean, beside the fact that Mike Dean loves a good red card and does not distinguish between players or managers, mm. it did seem like a crazy move from what should be one of the most experienced players on the pitch for either side. Um, yeah, well, exactly. In his 30s, he's been playing in the Premier League since you know, 2005, so... Well, yeah, I mean, and, and you really, you know, he said, Mike Dean, you really wouldn't hold this one against Mike Dean. He is known for having a bit of a trigger finger with those red cards, but this was pretty cut and dry. And seemingly out of nowhere, you know, you see this kind of incident when it is, for example, a derby game, or it's a game where one team has sort of been wasting time a lot and frustration is very high. But this was early on. It was late in the first half, but early on in the, in, in the grand scope of the game. So I just wondered what caused Kieran Gibbs to lose his cool in, in such a drastic way. I mean, of course... You know, Everton would have been happy to to get the chance to play against ten men, but um, but yeah, just just a weird move from him. Yeah, you got to wonder if maybe there was a little bit of gamesmanship from Hamas Rodriguez. Maybe if you know a word or two was said before that, and then you know he just nudges him as he goes past in quite a provocative way, and Kieran Gibbs just loses his cool. Um, well, you know what? If that is the case, he's come on out on top, Rodriguez, because if he's managed to... That was always one of Diego Costa's great skills as a player in the Premier League. It wasn't even really the goal scoring. It was just, I can get someone sent off once every three games. Yeah, it's not something that you naturally attribute to Hamas Rodriguez, but, you know, that guy wants to win, and he wins. Um, yeah. So, fair play. As you said, West Brom started the game really well. They went 1-0 up. Um, Dean Garner looks like a really smart pickup. He's a great mm. little player, and... You know, as we've seen with uh, Mark Noble's Twitter uh, activity, he's not exactly very happy that um, he's swapped sides. But No, and you could see why not in this game. A lovely little solo run, great little finish. Um, yeah, looks just as good as anyone on that team. So great pickup. Yeah, and, and you know, Everton were very strong and West Brom were not unfortunate to go down to 10 men because, you know, it happened and there wasn't really anything unlucky about it. But mm. they do look like a good outfit and they do look like they are of Premier League standard. Yeah, there are other teams that I've already seen play, um, you know, and I wouldn't say that West Brom look like the weakest of the promotion teams. I think that, you know, we already discussed, I think we both have them staying up. But yeah, I, I don't think they look like they're, uh, they're, they're like, you know, un, undeserving guests here. They they look like they are a team that belong here. Um, and and the other player as well, Mateus Pereira, wonderful free kick. So they've got little, you know, little caches of quality um, that I think will see them through all right. But that was, you know, amazing way to start the the game week and something that you might normally look at the average person. You know, Everton and West Brom, you might go, eh, well, you know, is that going to be a, a huge game? Seven goals. Exactly. Uh, but. Moving into our next game in the game, which was also a seven-goal thriller, uh, Leeds-Fulham, which was Leeds 4 and Fulham 3. Yeah, unbelievable. Um, and you just got to wonder, you know, Leeds is such a wild card at the moment. It's just, you know, you never, you just don't know what's going to happen next game. Um, it's a really <laughs> exciting team to watch. And, you know, they look great. They scored four goals. They've scored seven so far this season. But they've also conceded seven. So... You know, it's a bit of a toss-up between how solid they're looking as an outfit, but mm -hmm. entertaining all the way. Yeah, positives and negatives. And I think these two games were 
really, I mean, they were direct contrasts, not only because Leeds won one four three and lost one the other four three, but because sort of, you know, this was Leeds playing against a top side and Leeds playing against one of the weaker sides in the league and the end of the results weren't that different. So I don't know if this speaks to the, you know, consistent inconsistency of their defenders that they're just as likely to let Fulham through as they are to let Liverpool through or to their attackers that they can score against any kind of a defence. But, um, yeah, I think some of the players moving forwards for them, obviously with, with four goals, you've really got to doff your cap to. Patrick Bamford um, was just, I, I was really surprised at his quality in this game. In the Liverpool game, I thought he struggled a little bit despite his goal and could have definitely done better. But he had a really good game here. Um, and I've typically always had him pegged as not quite good enough for this level, which seems to be where his career has found him. Um, but, you know, he was scoring goals today. He was creating them. Granted, it is Fulham, but you can only score against the teams in front of you. So... You know, if he can continue with that sort of confidence, and it is such an important part of a of a player's you know performance over the course of the season, confidence and starting this way, he'll be full of it. Absolutely, um, and you talk about you know can Leeds maintain this, and they play an incredibly aggressive, dynamic, physically draining style of football, and definitely players like Patrick Bamford. For me, yes, I was very impressed with him and have been very impressed with him, but there's still a question mark over whether or not this is a good run of form or if he is of the right standard. Um, and I would say that that is still the same for Leeds and that they need to do it consistently. And realistically, you shouldn't be conceding. You can't be conceding three plus goals every game, even if you score one more. Um, the only thing I would say is that while Leeds-Fulham isn't an obvious derby because of different parts of the country, not a historic rivalry, they are both coming up from the championship and that does sometimes add a little bit of spice, a little bit of an edge to the game um, because both will see it as an early indication of whether or not they're going to stay up. It's it's good points to win. And so I, I do think that this was, again, I'd put that in the same category as like Everton versus Liverpool in that it's not always a true reflection of, of what their seasons are going to look like. Yeah, no, I think that's a fair point, because it is true, if you're one of the championship sides, you are looking at this game as like, okay, this is maybe our best chance to, to stack up some points. Um, and I did think, you know, both of these sides, great game for the neutral, but both of them are going to have a, a lot of work to do on the back, because it's all well and good to come and play against, you know, a Fulham or a Liverpool that looked a bit groggy to start and were making a few mistakes, and try and do the whole game of outscoring people. But I really worry about Leeds when they go and play a Wolves, for example, or maybe like a Burnley or, or, or a Sheffield. I wonder how they those games are going to go, because when you have the strategy of just being, you know, a little bit open at the back because you're confident you're going to score enough at the other end and you come up against a really well-drilled, defensively-oriented side, it can sometimes go completely the other way for you and you can have your pants pulled down, you're not able to get a sniff, but you've left everything open at the back. Yeah, definitely. And, and in that sense, I think that Liverpool were a little bit of a false dawn in that they play a very high line, they play an open game, they also plan to outscore their opponents. So they're not necessarily a true reflection of what it will be like to come across good sides with really solid defences, as you said. Um, yeah, de- definitely. And, and in a certain sense, you know, Fulham can, can be quite attack-oriented as well. So a lot of things, they definitely, as soon as it became clear that this is the kind of game Leeds are playing, we're just going for it. And Mitrovic is kind of like Bamford for me, that he has played in the Premier League a few times, uh, obviously once with Fulham and, and once with Newcastle. And never quite look to the level. And then he goes down to the championship and scores like 25 league goals and, and looks fantastic. And all the fans of whatever team he's playing for get excited. 
is this maybe the season that he can start to make his case? Because he's, you know, got two today, didn't start against Arsenal, but I don't know that that would be a, a great reflection of how Fulham might play, because again, it's a it's a big game. Um, but yeah, got two goals today, kept his head down, got two different kinds of goals, one penalty and one header. Is this maybe the, the time he's going to cut his teeth in the top division? We'll see. We will do. And um, yeah, I think, um, you know, Fulham can take some, you know, some some good from this, I think. To score three goals is always nice. It means the attack's flowing well. As you said, obviously both sides need to work on their defence, but that is absolutely a, a thread that we're going to see running through all of these games almost. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Rolling into the new season with leaky, leaky back lines. Yeah, and I wonder if, the, I mean, we'll, we'll speak about this a little bit later because I've got something I want to tie it into, but um, yeah, it'll be interesting to look at whether that's just a trend because it's the start of the season and people are, are sort of maybe coming off holiday, but it could also be the other sort of end of it because we've had such a small break between last season and this season. Um, you know, is this going to be kept up? From a fan's perspective, I would hope so because I was sat here on Saturday at like 4pm, absolutely shell-shocked that I've seen 14 goals in two games, but... <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't know if that's possible. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I don't want to step on your toes if you've got something to say later on about it. But yeah, you do wonder if it's this kind of training ground effect of not having a home fans to create the atmosphere. There's not, not as much of an edge to the games because there's there's no spectator. I don't know. Yeah, no, and, and that is definitely something that I want to tie into it later. But um, speaking of uh, maybe the lack of home fans and, of you know, traditional fortresses being broken down a little bit, Crystal Palace went away to Old Trafford, which is maybe one of the most, you know, notorious fortresses in world football, not so much these days, but certainly back in the day, and got three against Man United. Absolutely, and it's funny because on the one hand, it feels like it's a bit against the grain in that, People are excited about Man U. They seem to be building something, even if even they aren't quite sure what it is. But Bruno Fernandes is a great player. The attack's flying. Young players coming through. Donny van der Beek's just signed. But they're showing the same problems that they've always had, which is that they can't win these... They don't must-win games, but they need to win in order to finish well games. Yeah, and, and again, like this is Palace, who we've been talking about. Yes, they started, you know decently well beating Southampton last week and this represents a massive win for them but Palace are still not a side that I would consider really threatening Zaha definitely has eaten all of his Weetabix uh, and, and, and in this game looked like he was ready for it but you know United really can't drop points like this and if they are I just I think it goes back to the whole thing of just like is Solskjaer good enough tactically and I think as well as you know tactically obviously you can look at the number nine thing which United just they miss that proper number nine so much but as well as that there's this enormous reliance on younger players I mean every, every football fan loves to see some young players coming through their squad and you know having the sort of average age that's, that's a bit younger but you do need that experience and United really don't there were no outfield players that started for them that were older than 27 two of their three subs were 18 18-year-old Mason Greenwood and 23-year-old Donny van der Beek. And the, the only outfield player they had older, over than, old, older than 27 that game was Odin Agala, who's the third sub. Um, and I just think we talk so much about how you want that mixture of experience and youth. And in a sense, United have experience in as much like, you know, Paul Pogba's won a World Cup and David Hayes won, won a Euros and I think also a World Cup as part of the squad as well. But 
they need those old heads who've been through a little bit of it all. And it's definitely been a, a running theme with Man United, not having those sort of elders in the dressing room that they had in days of old um, to sort of keep things going. And the kind of people who'd galvanise you at half time and go, come on, we've got we've to get things going here. Yeah, for sure. And I think that to echo your points, a lot of Manchester United's problems against Crystal Palace came from the switch from not having Nemanja Matic in midfield, but having Scott McTominay instead. Matic, a 32-year-old versus McTominay, who's what, like 23? Mm -hmm. Yeah, 23 years old. It created a a lot of issues. Paul Pogba maybe felt like he needed to do a little bit more defending, so he sat deeper, which is always a problem for Man U. Um, Mm. And we also just saw what happens when Bruno Fernandes doesn't play well, which is they create very little. Um, Yeah, and I I think just to touch on that about Bruno Fernandes, this is again something tactical for me. We've already talked about, you know, what what was the Donny van der Beek signing all about. And he did score United's one today. But as soon as he came on, it seemed like it pushed Bruno Fernandes really, really, really deep into the midfield. And you kind of have all these midfielders here that I I don't think Solskjaer has a plan in mind of how to work them. He's just also almost sort of gone FIFA manager mode. And he's just gone, okay, well, all these are good players, so they'll all play well together. I think they found an element of that at the end of last season with um, Fernandes and Pogba. But now they've added van der Beek to the, you know, to the system and it doesn't seem to be getting the most out of who has been their best player over the last six months I think if you're United manager you need to you know put Fernandez first and then build everything around him not bring in a player who's going to push him out of the position that he's brought a lot of success to the club with um yeah well it's really hard because can you build your squad around a player that comes in halfway through the season yes he's made a massive impact but I don't know if I, I personally would not be ready to commit all of my eggs into the Fernandez basket because you need more tactical acumen than that. You need to have plans and options beyond we'll just give the ball to Bruno Fernandez and please create five chances every game because as we found out, it doesn't work all the time. Mm. Yeah, I mean, building around it is, is maybe one way to look at it, but I, I mean just more in terms of signing direct competition for him because they did both stay on the pitch, but Bruno was just not playing in that attacking role. And when he's not playing yeah, in that attacking role, he can't create chances. And when he can't create chances, it turns out United can't really create chances. Um, you know, Van Der Beek scored the goal, but it was a fairly scrappy goal that was more down to Palace's bad defending than, um, you know, United's offensive pressure. I did think United got really unlucky um, with the penalty that, that they conceded. Um, it's something that we'll be talking about a fair bit this episode because there were quite a few similar instances to it um, in the other games. Uh, and it was basically uh, the ball... Hitting McGrath on the shoulder. For me personally, I wouldn't have given it if I was the man in the middle. Um, and VAR decided that it was a handball. According to the new rules with the sort of inline with an armpit, it, it can be given as a handball. Um, and then Zaha took the penalty, got saved, and he got a second attempt at the penalty after VAR deemed that De Gea was two inches off his line, which again I thought was, you know, a little bit dodgy. If there's any team I'd be happy to see it happen to just karmically, it is United. But I, I didn't think that was hugely fair for them. I mean, it's it's the classic thing. Like, if someone is an inch offside, then they're offside. How do you regulate matches if you don't draw lines in the sand? They impose a new rule, which is that you have to stay on the line, at least part of your foot on the line. And it wasn't. Like, I don't see how anyone can argue with that. I do. I just disagree. In in, in terms of the uh, the being off the line or the other Maguire um, handball, being, being off the line, he's off the line. It has to be retaken. Oh no, no, that that I would say wasn't unfair. It it was just a shame that um, 
you know, for United, there was all these sort of different things that were coming together, um, you know, to result in maybe an unfair goal. I don't think it was an unfair result because, you know, Palace did score two besides and Zaha finished off with a really, really lovely bit of play and finish uh, at the end. Um, but yeah, I would have had a, a sour taste in my mouth just about that incident. Yeah, that's if fair. I was, uh, I mean, it's if I was a United it's player. one on the borderline. And yeah, I mean, we'll talk about the next game, a very similar incident. Um, mm. But, you know, I guess the flip side is we maybe haven't given enough credit in this conversation about Crystal Palace. We talked last week about how Andros Townsend said in his interview post-match that him and Zaha were starting to click a little better than they had before. And we sit, we're seeing it. They're getting goals together. They're playing really well. Crystal Palace seem to be moving a little smoother than they have in the last season or two. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, this was a for them. this was a huge, huge win for them. Not only because it was a win away at Old Trafford, which is always massive for any team, really, but also because their next two games are against Everton and Chelsea. So to have picked up six points where they can, uh, you know. Ahead of ahead of those two games, and and who knows, you know, they're going to be coming in with a huge amount of confidence to those two games. So, who who knows? They might nick a point here or there. They might nick three. Yeah, wouldn't be surprised. I mean, they've off to a great start. Six points from Southampton and Manchester United away is unbelievable. Um, yeah, so given how they finished last season, not bad at all. Is Roy Hodgson the best manager in the Premier League? Maybe. I would err on the side of no. <laughs> I mean, I just feel like there's just not enough evidence to support a no argument. <laughs> Ignore, ignoring the England tenure. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, no, details, a bit, details. Bit, bit of a weird game on both sides, but, you know, an, an enjoyable one. And, and, you know, well done to Palace for, for twisting the knife. But the other game that we had on Saturday, which is probably the least exciting game and certainly the lowest scoring game, was Arsenal hosting West Ham. Um and, you know, in a lot of ways, it was kind of a classic Arsenal game. It was one where they didn't really look like the better team and maybe were lucky to come away with something. But I do think you can take other things away from that as well. It was the kind of game I watched, and I did think afterwards, if they play this exact same game, the exact same way with the exact same players, but under Unai Emery, that's a draw, maybe even a loss. Uh, and so to get a win, I think, does represent the places they're going under Mikel Arteta. Are they a top, top team yet? No. Are they capable of a bit of a mistake or a, you know lackluster performance yeah but if you can do that and grind out three points I mean that's that's just fantastic yeah I so the only things that I would say to that is like yes you could very much see this game being a draw or a loss under Unai Emery but you could have very easily seen it being a draw on the loss on the day like I don't think there was much difference Arsenal could very easily have conceded two penalties and West Ham are in terrible form at the moment and really low morale so uh, I don't know if that we can chalk up this as like being indicative of the project that Mikel Arteta is building I do agree that yes Aubameyang and Lacazette looking like they're going from strength to strength but Arsenal look really fragile at the moment yeah I mean I, I think it's still finding their feet with a lot of their players Gabriel um, every single game well, he's only played the two so far, but he has, you know, flashes of looking like a really, really good player and then flashes of calamity. Um, and, and it's, yeah, like you said last episode, it's going to be which one of those roads that he follows is going to define how he is as a player. Fortunately, both games, he's sort of gotten away with it. And this was one of the instances um, that I thought was quite similar to the Maguire one. Um, I thought that Arsenal, if United are going to, if we're going to call that a penalty against United, which I still wouldn't, but if you are going to call it a penalty, which the, the FA clearly have, 
I think Arsenal were lucky not to concede one of their own. Um, it was definitely more of a pen than the Maguire one was, because um, it hit you know, lower on his arm. Uh, and I just think, yeah, that that what I took away from that was I was like, that just points out how you know nonsense the Maguire one was. But if that's the decision they're going to make after being on VAR, I think Arsenal were lucky to escape with it. Um, Lacazette does seem to be playing with a lot more confidence this season. I think last year Arsenal did struggle because they only had Aubameyang as like a real goal threat. So if Lacazette can hit off the mark and get this confidence, and again, strikers and confidence is so important, that, that could be a huge addition to them. Um, so yeah, I, I think, um, and, and Nketiah as well, lovely bit of play to get the ball to Nketiah and a, and a good strikers finish. He's another one who has not, always looked top quality and I still don't think is but managed to get the goal when it mattered uh, to win the game yeah it's funny I think that personally I feel like I understand Arsenal a lot better when I think about them as a club that are trying to cause the most emotional damage to their fans as possible because (laughs) it just feels like their recruitment for example is like in attack we're going to sign players that are very form based and that you know blow hot and cold so that you get excited but then you get disappointed we're gonna have Mm -hmm. one really good player but then threaten to take him away every single window and in defense we're just going to sign players that always play heart and mouth football and daniel (laughs) is another one in the long line of of arsenal center backs that just like give you heart palpitations when you oh yeah Um, oh yeah no for sure yes he's only 22 but that's not that young. Like he plays like he's like eighteen. And uh, 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 for me, jury's still out on him as a player. I think he's showed some really good parts. You've you've also got to appreciate that you know, young younger player. Yes, is is one aspect, but also in a new league, settling in. It's literally his second game for the club. He didn't even have that long to train. Um, you know, I think he was in two weeks after being signed. So he could continue to put up these calamities. It could be, you know, a little bit of nerves. Certainly it was the same with um, our boy Robin Cock over at Leeds. Conceded two penalties in two. Do I think he's going to be conceding 38 penalties this season? Absolutely not. Um, But, you know, we'll see. Uh, Yeah, you're right. You know, the jury's still out. He's definitely still got a lot of time to prove his worth. And if he can make his mistakes and go unpunished in games like this, then all the better for it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, that that's really what it comes down to. Sometimes you just have a really bad game and sometimes those games you get punished for it and, you know, it's on the front page or the back page of the news and your confidence is broken, it can be a downward spiral. And sometimes, you know, you can kind of get away with it a bit. And I didn't even think that he was the most suspect player in the Arsenal defence today. I, I really thought Rob Holding had a bad game. Definitely for Antonio's goal, he just doesn't look to me like a player who's going to be there for long when the whole squad is fit and everyone's been properly integrated I, I don't see him playing a lot of football oh yeah I mean when you talk about players that you're not quite sure are Premier League standard he is absolutely near the top of the list um, I would say Gabriel also gets caught in no man's land for that goal but yeah um, Arsenal's defence uh, yeah. definitely looks like it needs work Any I suppose the differences with Gabriel yeah, no, I, th- I thought West Ham, you know, it, it's difficult to say a lot of good stuff about them because they've had a really tricky start. But I do think Mikel Antonio looks good again. He's, you know, definitely looks like he's bulked up a little bit over the break because he managed to muscle aside uh, Rob Holding for his goal. Um, but yeah, I, I just don't, I think they're going to be in trouble for a little bit. Probably end up sacking David Moyes and then hopefully, you know, for their sake, manage to, manage to brighten things up because they do look just a little bit lost for ideas. I, except for the times when Michelantonio pulls his socks up and, and does it himself. 
It's true. It's funny because um, I don't often will teams to do badly, but as soon as you put your like flag in the sand and you make predictions, like I predicted West Ham to finish 20th, and now every <laughs> time they lose, I'm like, it's happening. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I you know you do hope for them that they can turn it around because they do have the players for it. It just doesn't seem to work. The puzzle isn't quite fitting together. Yeah, it just hasn't it hasn't clicked. But I think it still can, and I think what they need is a new manager. Um, but we'll see if the board makes that decision. Agreed. Moving on to Spurs versus Southampton, we have our third seven goal thriller. Um, I mean, which is becoming commonplace. I mean, boring. good lord! Honestly, yeah, I, I was I was yawning as, as the game. Only seven. Um, <laughs> seen it? I've seen it. Come on. Yeah, and this game was was all a little weak in in, in the sort of seven goal throws we've seen because you know it, it was almost a dull game in the first half. Southampton scored fairly early on, and Spurs didn't really look like they were getting into it. Um, you know, I was watching the first half and thinking, Christ, you know, it, it's really not working out for Mourinho here. He can't break down Southampton. They really didn't look equal to the challenge for the majority of the first half for me. And it was only the late, late sun goal, which, by the way, just got to, you know, shout out Tango and Dombele. I don't think he's going to get a lot of mentions because about this match because he got overshadowed. But what a bit of, you know, Brazilian tactical now to, to sort of do, do like a, a roundabout before he played it through to Kane. I thought I didn't know he had that in his locker. It was impressive, wasn't it? It's not something that you don't necessarily attribute to Ndombele. So yeah, fair play to him. Because he was like half falling over as well. It was such a defensive midfielder's bit of skill because he was like he half stumbling. Out of position. <laughs> yeah, I, I love to no see that though. Diaby. I love to see that. But yeah, no, I mean, so for the first half, Spurs just didn't really look like they were going to be doing much of anything. Uh, and then it was Son who sort of got that late, late goal from an overhead pass as well, um, just because he's so rapid. And then it was almost as if Spurs figured out they hadn't really realised that Southampton were playing a high line and then came out in the second half and were like, hmm, Southampton are playing a high line and we've got one of the most rapid players in the league here. We can kind of just punt it forwards. Sun has like a good chance of getting it. And all Sun's goals, all four of them, came that way. I don't know why Southampton didn't change their defensive lineup because they kept playing high line. The ball kept going over the top or, or, or across in, in the first one's case. And Sun would just run onto it, beat his man, because he's going to do that against any defender in the league, really, except for your, your nippier wing uh, fullbacks. Um, and yeah, I mean, you know, not to take away anything from him, he still needed to finish it, but I mean, he'll, he'll be, he'll think he's never had an easier time in his life. Yeah. I mean, Southampton definitely made it easy for Tottenham. Um, I mean, one of the goals literally went straight through in between the two centre-backs and we're really seeing them struggle at the start of the season. And we've, we've seen a shift from last season's formation of 4-3-3, which provides maybe a little bit more protection in front of the defence to a flat 4-4-2 as a result of the fact that Pierre-Emile Hoiberg has left. Mm. And they're really struggling. They are offering very little protection. Ariel Romeo doesn't seem to have the same stature that he has in the past couple of seasons. James Ward-Prowse, as perfect as he is, can only do so much. And um, yeah, I think that they've got a real hole in that midfield now that they need to shore up maybe with with a new signing before the window closes. Definitely to address it with new signings, I would say, because there's, there's a lack of quality there. But also just to, I mean, we've, we've criticised other managers of this. And, you know, Hassan Hettel has got to figure out when something is not working to that extent and be able to change it. Even if it's as simple as get going, you know, sit back, guys, don't don't try and pressure. Because Spurs just adapted. 
They went for a high line, presumably to sort of capitalise on Harry Kane's lack of pace and try and get the ball back higher up the pitch. But all Spurs then did was change their game plan and it just took Southampton to bits in the exact same way four times in a row. Yeah, it's funny. In, in that sense, I guess Southampton kind of feel a little bit like West Ham in that they just kind of sit back and they're like, come on, Danny, score some goals, please. <laughs> yeah, no, no, exactly. And he did still score two, which was, you know, not a bad day for him personally, but it was two against five, which is, you know, not, not the result any team wants. I think it's interesting for it's, Spurs surely not. as well, because they are now looking, obviously, at the two signings they made this week, Gareth Bale uh, and Sergio Regulon. Um, so... I wonder what that means for Spurs for the rest of the season. If they can get five here against Southampton, if they add those two players in as well, is that going to be interesting? What, what do you think about the Gareth Bale signing? I think it's a great signing. I mean, it completely transforms the, I guess, the momentum of the club. I think that since Christian Eriksen left, they've been in a bit of a downward spiral. They haven't been performing. The atmosphere hasn't been good, as we are learning through this documentary mm. um, that is coming out week on week. And to bring back a cult hero who is 31 and can still do an absolute job, even if it's not every week in, week out, um, I think it's a really great signing. The other thing that I would say is that Gareth Bale has completely overshadowed the second signing that you mentioned, Sergio Reguilon, Mm -hmm. who is a really talented player. And I think Spurs fans should and will be as excited for him as they are about Gareth Bale. Because yeah, no. we saw him in the Europa League against um, for Sevilla, a really, really talented, exciting left back. The only concern is whether or not Jose Mourinho can get the best out of an attacking fullback. Yeah, so this is my, I mean, not to go really controversial here and potentially set myself up for, for delicious yolk and shell all over my face, uh, not for the first time, but I was, you know, personally, I, I was more excited for, on Spurs' behalf for the Sergio Regulon signing than the Gareth Bale signing, um, just because I think, yeah, he is a really exciting, vibrant attacking fullback who could really add another dimension to them going forwards, uh, as well as being quite steady at the back. Gareth Bale, I, I'm not entirely convinced on as a signing I think on paper that's an amazing move uh, and everyone certainly thinks about you know the last time Gareth Bale was at Spurs he took them to an entirely different level they were sort of still in the quagmire of of mid-table football and he you know scored a lot of goals in the Europa Leagues he did really you know smash some goals and against some of the bigger sides in the Premier League so if you're thinking about that Gareth Bale then yeah it's a really exciting signing but this is a Gareth Bale who's coming off the back of no real consistent football for a long time. And I think that is always a very difficult obstacle for players to overcome. He could hit the ground running over at Spurs and be given all the you know reassurances and encouragement that he needs to get back to his old form. But I would have a little bit of a question mark uh, over if he's going to be able to find his you know earlier Spurs and certainly early Real Madrid form straight away. Especially if you consider that it's Jose Mourinho he's coming to. And Jose Mourinho and attacking-minded wingers don't typically have a great relationship. He loves a number nine. He loves a winger that can track back. But if you think about his history with players like Hazard, for example, he's always almost sort of going, you know, okay, well, you know, it'll be saying to Gareth Bale, like, oh, you were a left-back when you started here, weren't you? Well, you'll be in competition with Sergio. Yeah, I mean, the only thing that I will say, and maybe this is being annoying about it, but you say Jose Mourinho loves a number nine. What is Gareth Bale's shirt number? <laughs> Maybe that's why. Maybe Mourinho has like tried to convince himself that he's going to be nice to Gareth Bale by giving him the number nine shirt. Please, I really want to like you, Gareth. Please. Yeah, I mean, it all depends on narrative and 
you know, I don't want to just sit here and rewrite it because we're going to see it unfold. So there's no point. But you could also say that, you know, he's been yearning for game time that he hasn't got. And he's coming back to a club that he loves and loves him. Mm. I mean, really loves him. And what better place to rediscover his, his love of the game? Um, That's very true. A professional golfer. He became a professional footballer, which means that he loves football more than golf, presumably. At least well, somewhere in his psyche. Yeah, he said, um, yeah, not not when he was so, in Madrid. <laughs> well, yeah, but that's because he wasn't allowed to play football. He wasn't given the time. Yeah. Um. So you know, I I think that we could also see him in an attacking midfielder role. We saw him play central attacking mid towards the end of his Spurs time. Yeah. Before he even moved to, um, Real Madrid, and that's where he had some of his really best games across the front line. So, I I don't know. I think it could be an inspired signing. It um, could be an inspired. It just always makes me think. That, of like another player at Real Madrid. Remember when Ike Casillas just got frozen out by Kaelin Navas? And we're talking about a guy here who was one of the best goalkeepers on the planet for like 10 years, didn't play for a season, and then the next time we saw him play for Spain, he was just awful, which is just a shame to see because he was such a legend growing up, but just one season of not getting proper football and not even getting proper training, and he dropped off that hard. And I think it's extremely difficult for any professional footballers, especially if you want to play at the top level. You know, he's not gone to a... a he's gone to a top six side... Uh, and is he going to be able to keep up the the kind of form that we've seen from him when he hasn't had proper training for a year and he's had more practice on his swing than you know his free kicks? I have question marks. Again, I could be wrong and he could hit the ground running, uh, but I think that best case scenario, it takes him a while to settle in. I mean, let's take another player, James Rodriguez. Criminally mm. underrated again by Real Madrid. Went instantly into Bayern Munich's starting lineup and had an amazing season and now finds himself playing incredibly well at a new club again. It can go either way. Yeah, definitely, which is why my caveat was if he, you know, feels that he gets the encouragement because certainly James Rodriguez, who, again, I had maybe some question marks over selling right in, he, he, you know, he's with his dad. He's with his dad now. Daddy Ancelotti has, has basically, you know, clearly been going, I trust you 100%. You're going to be the guy to take this team forward. And he is right. He's running the midfield of that team now, so. He sure is. Unlike uh, Carlo. <laughs> exactly. Should we take a quick break for some useless trivia before we start the second half of games? Let's. Um, yeah, I've got quite a fun bit of trivia for you this week, Cameron, mm-hmm. which I don't think you will know about. Okay. Um, you know, all of the, this talk about penalties this week, a lot of penalties have been given since the start of the season. Um, and did you know that there are two players in the Premier League that have scored penalties with their weak foot? Wow, okay. I didn't know that. So, are these players... They've scored penalties both with their strong foot and weak foot in the Premier League. So, I assume by definition that excludes your players like Santi Cazorla, who would define himself as ambidextrous. Yeah, exactly. So, um, the two players are Bobby Zamora and Obafemi Martins. Wow. I wonder why either of those players chose to take a penalty with their weak foot. Maybe on a perfect hat-trick or something? Oh, I mean... I, I didn't quite get to the bottom of why they did it, but it's a real flex. Um, and, you know, in the uh, in the weekend that, I guess, extreme um, techniques like Jorginho's were caught out against Liverpool, mm. um, I thought it was quite a funny thing that uh, two players decided to take it with their weak foot to score. The funny thing about that is is that, like, unless unless you're doing it because you're quite confident in your weak foot and you think that you can wrong foot a keeper who's maybe studied all your tapes, it's, like, the the, the main reason that makes sense to me for, for it. Otherwise, if it's just a flex, it's like the ultimate penenka. If it comes off, I mean, hilarious. But if it doesn't, you look like a dick. 
Yeah, I mean, I guess the, uh, you know, like some stats you feel like they have a, um, like an iceberg effect. I don't know how many players tried that and missed. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I'm sure a fair few. Mine is also sort of tied in with the goals scored uh, this week. Uh, and it's because uh, I was having a look at quite how many goals were scored over, over the course um, and, and seeing where that sort of ranked against other Premier League game weeks. So the most goals ever scored in the Premier League game week is 53 goals, which are scored on the weekend of the 8th and 9th of May in the 1992-93 season. But as our keen and or older fans will know, this was still when the Premier League was a 22-team season. Um, so there's an extra game to account for in this game week. In the 20-league okay. era, 20-team league era, the record was set in February 2011 when the goal tally reached 43. Um, so over the course of the 10 games, 43 goals, pretty amazing amount. This weekend, however, the teams broke the record by racking up 44 goals, which is the new current goal-scoring record in the modern Premier League era, which I thought was quite interesting. And not entirely surprising, but it was nice to see uh, that my first thing was I was like, when were the most goals scored? Oh, it was this weekend. Wow, yeah, there you go. I, I haven't seen that um, statistic floating around yet. So um, that is an interesting one. And I guess, you know, seven goals apiece is, is going to count up. Yeah, what was funny was I actually read it on Sunday that the record could be broken on Monday if five goals got scored. And as I was watching the City game, I was like, come on, come on, someone do it. Yeah, well, it's funny because you say like, you know, Arsenal-West Ham was a bit of a dull game, but still three, still three goals, so... Well, I mean, that's the funny thing, by, you know, by comparison. But that's when we were talking earlier, just what I wanted to tie in with you. You know, do we think that this really high-scoring, the highest-ever-scoring weekend in the modern Premier League era, um, you know, was this an anomaly? Or can we expect a high-scoring season overall? And if so, why do we think there have been so many goals? Is it because of the you know, unprecedented break between seasons and the players are all still really juiced. Is it the opposite? The defenders are really tired. VAR has definitely come in and, and had a huge impact on this season already. Do we think that that is going to mean we have more goals in general? I think, yes, the players are really juiced. I, I don't think that VAR necessarily will mean more goals. Yes, it means that decisions get looked at again, but as you we've seen with like rugby and the criticism that that has faced for it's like fourth decision refereeing. Mm-hmm. Um, it really breaks up play and it can disrupt teams' attacks when you know, we take a, a brief four-minute interlude to look something up on the TV. Um, so, yeah, it's interesting. I, I do think as well, I would insert what I said earlier, which is the lack of fans and, and this kind of vibe of a training ground match. Has, has contributed to it, you reckon? Yeah, I think so. I think... You know, it just doesn't quite have the same atmosphere, the same edge, the same preparation. It's it's just not the same. Yeah, um, I, I, I think that's a good point, actually, which is why I wanted you to sort of just discuss it here, because I do think you look at a lot of the teams that are typically thought of as having fortresses. A lot of that is to do with the sort of fan presence, the making a difficult place to come to, and you've got, you know, however many thousand fans, you know, screaming at your back or, or screaming at the opposition. Um, which I think, you know, obviously does make a difference. And, and we, we are seeing here a really high-scoring season. It'll be interesting to me to see if it continues um, over the course of the season. I agree with you, yeah, definitely. Um, moving on to another relatively high-scoring match, Newcastle-Brighton, 3-0. Yeah. Um, quite a weird one, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I thought it was weird because Newcastle last week 
sort of looked quite confident in their dispatching of uh, of West Ham. And it looked like all the pieces had fallen into place. Definitely we were thinking, you know, we were waxing lyrical about Callum Wilson being the, the piece in the puzzle they needed. Um, and not only did he have a little bit of a tricky game today, but, but sorry, in, in this game, but but so did all of Newcastle. Um, this scoreline was, was just a really difficult one for them. What I will say is um, Tariq Lamptey continues to impress with Brighton, um, drew the foul for the opening penalty uh, just by absolutely gunning it and, and using a bit of skill to draw it, and then took the ball forwards and made the pre-assist for their second. Um, Brighton just came shooting out of the gates, um, whereas Newcastle took a minute to, to get out of bed, and by the time they did, they were already 2-0 down. Yeah, that first 20 minutes was was critical for the game and brutal for Newcastle because they just weren't really waking up as quickly as Brighton were um, and you know the game got decided in, in that period of, and yeah it's interesting because you know Newcastle are a very exciting side and Callum Wilson is a great signing but behind him the players are still quite young and still quite inexperienced um, so it, I guess it's no surprise on reflection that they're not necessarily going to have that week in week out consistency it did look great last week didn't look great this week and it might be a tale of kind of Jekyll and Hyde Newcastle's attack um yeah it could be season and I, I I mean one of the players that at Newcastle I really love watching and I think is really exciting is Alan Maximan and he's a really exciting winger moving forwards and makes it you know just just always twist defenders blood but he had an abysmal first 30 minutes here and um, to the point where you know he was subbed off with a what seemed to be a bit of an ankle thing, but I also think it wasn't. It was one of those that often you see a manager be like, "Oh, try and run it off," and he was just taken off immediately because he just was not in the game. And I think he, because he's so forward moving and not very sturdy at the back, he he doesn't really have a lot of competent defensive cover. So when you've got someone like Jamal Lewis next to him, but uh, behind him rather on the left side, anytime he comes forward like he did the first time when Tariq Lamptey came in, it means that Sam Maximan, who doesn't really know how to tackle the ball or, or do anything defensively, you know apt just is, is forced to try and put in a shift and gave away a penalty as a result um you know Lamptey and Trossard were bombarding the right side all day long and especially um you know Jamal Lewis picked up a yellow that was right before Sam Maximan got sent and um, got subbed off rather because I think the manager was just like you know what let's not risk it not risk it with Jamal Lewis on a yellow because next time Sam Maximan tries to trap out either he's getting uh, booked or Lewis is getting sent off yeah, definitely. Um, I think that left side of Newcastle is really going to need a looking at because two great players, Jamal Lewis, really exciting, great signing from a relegated side. And St. Maxim, as you said, really, really great player, one to watch for the future. But they're not really getting a, a great balance um, between attack and defence. No. Uh, so, you know, St. Maxim might need to move over to the right. Um, we will see how that tactically develops throughout the course of the season you know they might need to adapt their games a little bit and and that could prove detrimental to Newcastle's attack I think Uh, so but Brighton again also had a um I guess a tale of two weeks um losing 3-1 to Chelsea they looked good in spells in that game but ultimately conceded three and and weren't the best side um and here they looked like a pretty well-drilled outfit yeah, scored three and conceded none, which is as good as you could ever want, really, as, as a manager. I think Graham Potter will definitely be happy with that as, as, as you know, as a team performed. Obviously, the Tariq Lamptey was the one who you know was involved with those both uh, first two goals, and Neil Morpé scored them. But Aaron Connolly was also really impressive. And this is the thing with Brighton, maybe, is it's they they're youngsters who are going to come through and inject that side with a bit of excitement. Um, 
So yeah, they've got a lot to look forward to if those kids can can keep up a little bit of consistency over the course of this season. They sure do. Um, ones ones to watch, absolutely. Um, moving on to another big fixture, or what what promised maybe falsely to be a big fixture: Chelsea what, versus Liverpool. What could have been a huge fixture, and it was just such a weird. I mean, Kepa, 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 right? Um, I think the the Christensen thing, you know, Christensen getting sent off obviously ruined Chelsea's chance of staying in the game. I thought the first half was, you know, pretty even. I thought it was two top sides that were almost treating each other with a bit of respect and feeling out the game and, and seeing, you know, waiting for the other to make a mistake. And boy, did Chelsea. Yeah, I mean, it was a real, like, I'm going to throw the wig at the whole game in this one moment. Um, I never personally understand the logic of getting sent off in situations like this, I think it's such a dumb move. Yeah, no, absolutely. Not this early. If that's like in the 94th minute and it's the exact same you know, scenario and it's 1-0, fine, I get it. Put yourself on the line to probably deny a goal. But this early on, 47 minutes in or whatever it was, you're going to condemn your team to, you know, to playing with 10 men. And I did also think like, Kepper was coming out. It was maybe just what was going through Christensen's head. Was he just like Jesus? Like he's gonna absolutely ruin this. The only way I can stop it being a guaranteed goal is by rugby tackling Mane. Well, I mean that is the other point to make is that you know Kepper was in absolute no man's land, and realistically, if he doesn't come out, Mane still has twenty yards to run. Christensen has time to catch him up. Maybe if he takes a bad touch. Like, I think that was a really bad decision from him to come out the way he did. Yeah. And that put a lot of pressure on Andreas Christensen because if you look at that, you can immediately realise that Sadio Mane is going to get to the ball before Kepper and all it's going to take, take it around him, yeah. over the top or take it around him and he's in. So I, I think that absolutely like compiled the thoughts in Christensen's mind. But it's a shame because, as you say, they were kind of feeling each other out and it wasn't a massively exciting game in the first half but it did just kill the game um, yeah yeah it, it did very much what i would say about this incident is I, I thought it was a really good use of var um you know obviously var has had some some calamities but i do think it's good to call it out when um when it is used correctly i don't know how the ref didn't think it was a red card to begin with because he was last man mono was very obviously through on goal and he did rugby tackle him so i don't know what the ref was thinking when he was like yellow card but then to be fair, looked yeah, at it again. He must have thought maybe that Kepper was going to reach the ball. But yeah, it is great um, when VAR gets it right. You're absolutely right. Well done, VAR. Yeah, I think so far this season, this is another thing that you know <laughs> could have egg on my face. But I think so far this season, to me anyway, it's looked a lot more polished uh, and definitely better applied. I think the encouragement of referees to go and look at the side monitor has really helped make decisions that are, that are more accurate. Yeah, agreed. And I guess, you know, like anything... The early adoption of something doesn't always go very smoothly, but mm. that doesn't mean that the end result won't be a good thing. Well, that's that's what I'm hoping for. I'm hoping that this is an early indication of VAR sort of being used more intelligently and and you know being implemented more seamlessly in games. Yeah, exactly. Um, but you know, I guess going back to the game itself, um, it was a real tale of I guess Chelsea's. Not forgotten men, but men that they should forget. Um, <laughs> yeah, the ones who should be the Chelsea forgotten men. Yeah, because... You know what uh, I mean? Like, Kepa, horrendous mistake to come out. And, 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 and maybe force that. To, to concede the second goal. Assist for Mane. Um, Marcus Alonso, completely caught out of position. Followed the ball in a 1-2. It's literally like a training ground exercise. That first goal is such a horrible goal for any top side to concede. Because it's so simple. It's literally like... 
school kid football. Yeah. One to put it in the box. Um, yeah, um, Liverpool made it look very easy, and I think they can do that against a lot of teams. But Chelsea, being Chelsea, should probably do a little bit better. Yeah. So like a new left back, a new goalkeeper, a new centre back. It's not a new conversation for when it comes to Chelsea. Mm. Um, I mean, obviously I the, the second one was was the the, the real clanger. Just kept. I mean, do, peripheral vision. Does he have it? Was he wearing blinkers that we couldn't see from the the TV screen? I mean, I don't I don't know if he has much going for him at the moment. But peripheral vision is maybe not one of them. Um, the flip side, you gotta love when players like Sadio Mane just like get the bit between their teeth and get mad at themselves and people around them and just take things into their own hands. Yeah, and kicked it into high gear. His drive and passion to go for that ball, you love to see it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the thing. You, you love to see those when it's not your team's keeper doing it. Because at this point, pretty much every, ever since that short pass rule change, pretty much every team's had one of those. And everyone's just like, no! But then when you see it happen uh, as a neutral, you're like, oh, come on. Um, but yeah, no, I think, you know, obviously Liverpool... Um, did what they did, and, and Mane had a really good game. I think Chelsea had some bright spots, given that they had 10 men. Werner looked really, really good again, and I think he's just going to continue to be a fantastic player for them. Won the penalty, just looks really speedy and, and really difficult to deal with. If you're a defender, you would be you know, concerned with him running at you, because he can you know run past, have a shot from range, dribble quite well. So, yeah, I think that's one positive to take for Chelsea. Um, and if, you know... It is, and I think it's actually probably really... The only thing that we learned from that game, I mean, Liverpool weren't challenged at all. Thiago looked good, but realistically, making 75 passes isn't a massively amazing thing. He just mm-hmm. kept the ball ticking over as Chelsea sat back very deep. Um, Chelsea, we already know that the players that performed horrendously need to be replaced. Yeah, And yeah, I, I just think Timo looked good and that's about it. Yeah, yeah, and of course, obviously, the, the, the loser from the uh, Christensen red card, apart from you know, Chelsea at large and Christensen himself, was Kai Havertz, who didn't really get the chance to play much more because he got subbed off for, for Kai Otomori. Um, it was interesting that Lampard made that decision instead of subbing off, say, Mason Mount. Um, I don't know if that is you know anything you can consider with a lot of you know if you can really take take to mean that that to mean much uh, or maybe it's just a case that Mount's been playing longer so he knows how this sort of thing goes um but i don't think it was interesting that the sort of talisman creative midfielder was taken off and it was the the youngster that stayed on the the homegrown lad yeah i mean i think that the one thing is like sure he's a talisman but you know, it's his second game for chelsea Mason Mount is a known entity and you know how he's going to perform and he has an amazing work ethic. Um, the other thing that I would say is that Kai Havertz said in an interview after the first game that he was absolutely knackered uh-huh. after like 60 minutes. So maybe he was so, he was keen for the for the rest. Um, yeah, like I don't think it's, we don't necessarily need to read a lot into that. Decision. Yeah, I don't, I don't think it was just something I thought worth worth flagging. Um, just you know, because he didn't get a, a chance to sort of show himself off either this game either. But just not to stick on this game too long, because um, we've got a few more to cover and only a little time left. Leicester and Burnley. Um, Leicester have had a really explosive start to the season. Um, top of the table after the first two game weeks because they've got a great goal difference of plus five. Scored four today, spreading the goals around uh, you know a bit more as well. My chief concern for them definitely was um, that they over rely on Jamie Vardy and he didn't even score today when they got four. So, you know, for the attacking threat in general, Dennis Pratt was really good, stepped it up. Harvey Barnes was just running Burnley ragged and I have my doubts about him 
you know, in terms of consistency, but he looked great today. Um, and Castagna. Yeah, it's another it's another thing where you know you end up spe- um, talking so much about these games and breaking down the games that you forget that it's only been two. Um, and yes, Harry Barnes has looked great in both of them, but two games is not a, a season mate. Yeah, for um, sure. So yeah, no, still still got a lot to prove. Yeah, exactly. To old Cameron. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. But he started well, and he started as, hopefully as he's meant to get him on. And Castan seems like a really exciting defender as well. Really threatening coming up that right hand side. I wonder if that's going to mean that Ricardo Pereira gets back in as easily, or if Castan is going to move over to the left. Because at the moment, it seems to be a good little system they've got going. Both the right back and the left back, James Justin. Um, got goals uh, but I think partly for me the story here was not so much how amazing Leicester were but maybe how poor Burnley were at the back which was kind of a weird one for me because Burnley are usually one of the sides in the league that are quite difficult to break down um, and I thought they looked rusty this game you know all over the place for both Barnes and Justin's goals didn't have a lot of awareness in their own penalty area which is normally if you're looking at a Sean Dyke team where they like to excel um also an own goal from Peters, which I thought was really easy to avoid. The ball comes in quick, but not that quick. And he has a huge angle to knock it to, so it doesn't go into his own net. Um, I thought Burnley had a, a, a tricky game here, um, which is not to take too much away from Leicester, because they did still take advantage of that. But I thought that, you know, this is a side who normally we know can give people a difficult game, and they just did not. Yeah, definitely. And it's not an encouraging sign that, you know, as you say, they rely on their defence a lot and they conceded four goals. Mm. Um, You do wonder if, you know, obviously a lot of their defensive prowess is built on Turf Moor being an absolute fortress. They get their clean sheets at home and they get their points at home a lot of the time. They're not as good on the road. And you do wonder if, you know, the lack of fans, the lack of atmosphere um, is going to have a bad impact on their season and their performance yeah but uh, yeah no I, I agree and definitely at home they're much more sturdy my issue with them was not so much that they'd lost on the road to Leicester because that in and of itself you know is, is not the end of the world it was more they just look bad yeah the, the, the fashion in which they managed to concede four goals I was like wow you, you do not normally see these kind of defensive errors and, and you know just schoolboy mistakes from from Burnley the one area that they often lead the league in is just being difficult at the back but yeah, that, that was a weird one. But speaking of teams that are usually pretty tricky at the back, the other result that we had, which was the lowest scoring game of the uh, of the game week, but not by any means the, the most boring one because it was full of excitement. Aston Villa won Sheffield United nil, um, and we talked about this last week when you were you asked me if you if I thought I'd mispredicted anyone, and I initially had Aston Villa to go twentieth until they made the two massive massive signings of Ollie Watkins and Emmy Martinez, and those two both had starring roles in this game, helping Villa pick up the three points. Yeah, they did, and, and you know, you say them both in the same breath, and I think Emmy Martinez has as much of an impact, if not maybe even more, than the signing of Ollie Watkins, um, because, you know, he's saved a penalty on his debut, and he's just a really good keeper from what we've seen. Yeah, fantastic. Um, he, on his debut, saved a penalty, kept a clean sheet. Just uh, And having someone like that behind your defence can bring forward a whole defence. Certainly something that, you know, if you're a defender and you know the guy behind you, we saw it with Sheffield United last season where they had, um, you know, Dean Henderson. We've seen it certainly with the Arsenal defence when Martinez had their FA Cup run. They looked a lot more... Um, you know, comfortable. Whereas when you have someone like, for example, Kepa for Chelsea and how Christensen's felt or De Gea with United towards the back end of last season, you can see how it just affects defenders mentally and, and, and affects their game. So I think Villa are definitely going to be the beneficiaries of having Martinez beyond just 
um, you know, the penalty saves and, and what he's like as a keeper. Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't agree. Um, I- um, and it was always going to be a low-scoring game, I think, Aston Villa versus Sheffield. But, um, yeah, it was an exciting one. And obviously, you know, action on both ends. Um, great three points to pick up for Villa. Yeah, and Ollie Watkins, just, just to talk about Ollie Watkins' role as well, just amazing bit of pace early on, absolutely through on goal and just gets toppled by, by John Egan. He gets forced into a sticky situation. Um, it was a red card, I would have definitely said, but it wasn't as clear-cut as, you know, Christensen's rugby tackle. But I think I don't think Egan was intending to, to, to you know, get that red card. He was kind of just grappling with him. He was getting left behind. Watkins is so quick that he was just not able to keep up with him and it, it did end up becoming a foul. Um, and Sheffield, you know, then had to play with 10 men, which Aston Villa loved, um, loved being able to do. Um, and then, yeah, for, you know, their goal as well. This is what you want to see from Villa. If you want to see Villa succeed and improve, what they need to do is get a more polished game, you know, get those goals from areas that aren't just from Jack Grealish. And that's what they did today. A nice little set piece against Sheffield, which is not an easy thing to do. And, and Jack Grealish didn't even feature that much in this game. Absolutely, and you know, I'm sure he'll be delighted that he doesn't have to create absolutely everything with his right. Yeah, his, his back um, is not going to be aching at the end of the season quite as much. I think I think it still will, but not quite as much. Hopefully, with with these signings. Exactly. Maybe his calves will shrink from. Uh, yeah, definitely. Not needing to take on the burden of the whole team on his back. <laughs> exactly, um, but on, like on the Sheffield but, side. Uh, I did think... Yeah, they're not looking very hot, are they? I think... John Egan's out for three games there. Yeah. Really big player for that them. That's tough. Um, I, I did think, to be fair to Sheffield having to play with 10 men from 12 minutes in, this isn't necessarily a game that you could say, you know, oh, you could evaluate them massively. But I did think both here and last week, and certainly last season, where they're great is at the back, but where they need to add to their game is gold. And I was really concerned when I was listening to Chris, Rald- Chris, uh, Chris Wilder's comments after the game... Um, because he was kind of just saying things along the lines of, oh, we conceded from a set piece. We really shouldn't do that. We need to tighten up defensively. And, you know, we need to make sure that we can't make as many mistakes like John Egan did. And without John, we're going to, you know, need a bit more defensive fortitude. And it was like, Chris, that, I get that that's your niche, but you also need goals. If every single game ends nil-nil, you're not going to stay up. Yeah, it's it's a really weird one because, you know, when we talked about signs that we wanted to see, we kind of talked about how Sheffield needed to spruce up their attack and sign someone. But they've signed a goalkeeper, Aaron Ramsdale. They've signed like a centre-back, Ethan Ampadu. They signed a winger, Oliver Burke, who scored one goal in 31 games last season. Yeah, 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 exactly. exactly. He, he's and, a classic he example. on loan from West Brom. So, like, definitively was not good enough for West yeah. Brom in the championship. So, like, they need to pick someone up. They really do, and they, they really need to find those goals, um, because if they don't, you can't win games without scoring goals. Seems really obvious to say, but I was just surprised that Chris Wilder's comments were all circling around not being good enough defensively, and not instead that, oh, okay, we lost 1-0, but you know what? If we'd had someone to come through and get a lucky goal or get two, um, we would have won 2-1. But, yeah, I, I just don't. I don't think they're going to get a lot of goals this season unless they make a big signing. Um, and it could... It... Yeah, it's a weird one. You wonder if it's maybe a failing of his tactical thinking that he over relies on his defence or if it's actually maybe a reflection of what's going on behind um, closed doors in the boardroom that they're not agreeing to give him any new signs. They're not paying up the cash for an attacking saying, player. Well, yeah. I just need to make sure we never can... <laughs> yeah, well, 
I mean, if they're going to concede against Villa, albeit with with ten men, I, I wouldn't put a lot of stock in the idea. You know, in, in in that strategy, I think you need to find goals as well. But <laughs> that's true. Yeah, next few games are going to be tough. For them, moving to our especially without their star centre back. Moving to our last game before we wrap up the episode with the return of an old segment. Um, Wolves Manchester City um, was. Man City three away at Wolves, which is a huge result for City. Wolves always give them a tough time. They beat them home and away last season. So to come to the Molyneux on day one for City and, and get a convincing win was was huge for them. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, their key players look really sharp today. Kevin De Bruyne starting the season very well, as all City fans would have hoped he would. Uh, you know, it's kind of, I guess there's been a sense of what will they be like this season? Because... They could either capitulate, as I predicted, or win the champ, the Premier, mm. as you predicted. Um, yeah, they could, and I think it's going to come down to you know De Bruyne and Foden look like they've established a really good link now, and I, I don't know, obviously with Pep Guardiola, who who can ever say, but if he's going to be starting more often, it'll be interesting to see that link develop because even today the two of them were just so deadly together, and it's like you, you, as a midfielder on the opposite team, you're going to look at one of them with the ball and go. Oh, Christ, where's he going to pass? He could go any different number of places. So if you have another player like that who can ping it and ping it back and da 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 it can just run people ragged. And I think that happened with Wolves in this game. Um, which is not to say that Wolves weren't strong themselves. I think Daniel Podence is going to be a really exciting player for them. He was a bit of a bit part player last season, only coming in in January. But every single Wolves attack, he was heavily involved in. Tried some audacious stuff Almost as well. scored a very nice goal. Yeah, role. exactly. Um so I don't think, you know, the end of the world for Wolves. But this, for me, when I was thinking about how City's season is going to go this year as compared to last year, this is the kind of game I would have used, you know, I would use in this example. Because this is Wolves, who beat them home and away uh, last season, started the season really strongly. So I don't think Wolves have got worse. If anything, they've got better. But I think City have got a bit of a fire lit under them this season. And it is only one game. There's still 37 to play. They could lose all those for all we know. But uh, based on the the you know admittedly minimal evidence so far, I think they might be a bit of a different performer this season. Well, there you have it, folks. You heard it here first. Man City going to lose every game, <laughs> all thirty-seven losses on the bounce. Um, yeah, you're right. It's it's time will tell whether or not this Wolves performance is indicative of players like not performing as well as they have done, or teams working them out. Or if it's just a bit of a blip to have conceded three against what realistically is a very dynamic, very exciting attack. Yeah, for sure. Um, we are getting, I would love to discuss all of those games and certainly that last game a little bit more in detail, but we are coming quite close to time. And we have the reintroduction of one of our old segments from last season, uh, selling the score to get on with before we finish up for this week. We do indeed. Um, and yeah, I think let's just rattle through them and... Uh, we can break them down a little bit more next week when we talk about the results. Okay, so kicking us off next week, we start with Brighton versus Man United. Yeah, I've gone quite weird here. I'm going to go 2-2. Two, two. Oh, so yeah, I've also got 2-2 two, two um, here. Have you got 2-2 two, two as well? Oh, well, that's not weird then. We're the same. Yeah, I think... Yeah, I just feel like Brighton are going to come out the gate firing because they smell blood and they had a good result. Mm-hmm. And Man U score goals but a leaky at the back that's, yeah. that's exactly where I'm at yeah um, so let's let's see how that one goes Palace versus Everton I've gone Palace 1 Everton 3 uh, Palace good start of the season <laughs> but I think Everton are just gonna gonna give them a bit of a bloody nose here and go hang on guys don't get too confident we're the big daddies here 
Yeah, I've got Palace one, Everton three as well. That was that was my prediction. <laughs> I mean, it's just pretty standard prediction. Isn't yeah, we we, we, we we rattled yeah. these one off as compared both to sometimes. You're gonna score. That's fine. <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, both very exciting people. Me and you. Both teams won't uh, score, however, on West Brom Chelsea for me because I've got Chelsea three 0 Oh, Chelsea three 0 Okay. Um, yeah. Do you know what? I actually think Chelsea will keep a clean sheet because Thiago Silva's coming in in theory, and I can really see him shoring up the defence. I'm going to go 2-0. Okay, fair enough. Uh, Burnley-Southampton, I think, is going to be the antithesis of the games this week. 0-0 I've got for that one. Um, I'm going to go for a 1-1. Interesting. I mean, uh, Burnley did have a difficult game defensively, but I think they might react to that by really, you know, tightening up this game and making sure they don't concede any goals. And from Southampton's first game against Palace, I think their weakness is when people just put players on Ings, and Sean Dyke is not above that. He will put two men on Danny Ings and suffocate that game. Yeah, but Danny Ings can always score a goal, as we've learned and are continuing to learn. I think, you know, Southampton conceded five last week. There's a good chance that I'll concede again. And Chris Wood is, what, like 6 <laughs> See, enor- um, Enormous. So, uh, yeah, I, I reckon I reckon a 1-1. One, one. Yeah, second What's one. the measure Sheffield of Sheffield Leeds for you? Uh, Sheffield Leeds, I think... I'm actually really excited about this because I really want to see how Leeds perform against, as we talked about, a serious defence. And on the flip side, Sheffield aren't looking so hot right now, so this could be a chance for them to flip it around again. I'm going to go 2-1 Sheffield. I'm going 2-1 Leeds, because it is, it is a bit like that old fable, you know, or that old conundrum of an unmovable force versus an unstoppable object, except the reverse. Sheffield just do not want to score goals, and Leeds just do not want to keep a clean sheet. The, these things are true. Uh, so yeah, I mean, yeah. it really could go either way. Tottenham-Newcastle, I've gone for Tottenham 2, Newcastle nil. Um, I've gone 3-1. Interesting. Yeah, I think Tottenham are just they're obviously going to come off with a lot of confidence. I don't think Newcastle are going to be much of a match for them. Um, and I think it's it's going to be a 2-0. Um, nothing too flashy. Uh, but that's that's what I've got, got for that there. Man, Man City less is a huge one. Yeah, this is an exciting one. And I... Okay, yeah. It's... I'm really struggling with this one, to be honest with you. I I think it's going to be 3-2. I have gone, you know, I've already declared where I think City are going to be this season and how I think they're going to play. I think this is going to be a real statement of intent game and I think they're going to win 4-1. Big stuff. Yeah. That's, that'd be a, a big money play for Man City. That'd be huge, yeah. Fair play. I think, I think they're going to come bursting out the gates. They don't have Aguero and always do look a little bit less good without him, but I still think they're, they're, they're going to come out absolutely screaming. Um, West Ham Wolves. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, I mean West Ham Wolves. I'm pretty sure you'll have the same as me. Two nil to Wolves. It's got it written all over. <laughs> yeah, that, that I do. Yeah, I just don't see West Ham breaking down Wolves. Yeah, I see. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It is. It's the it's the quote unquote obvious score, isn't it? You know, Wolves don't like to concede very often, and, and if they can pre- you know prevent it, they don't. West Ham, on the other hand, haven't got enough to punch through a a Nuno defence when it's fully revved. So. Yeah, I back that. Um, Fulham Villa, I think, could be an interesting one. And I think I'm going to stick, I'm going to double down with my prediction that Villa might go down and Fulham are going to stay up. And I'm going to say that Villa, Fulham win this with a scrappy 1-0. See, I have both of these teams going down and in 19th and 20th. So it, it's not so much of a, a conundrum for me. But I think that Villa, just based on 
confidence and, and coming off these new signings will be a bit more exciting, I think, are going to win. So I've got the same scoreline as you, but in reverse, 1-0 Villa. Mm. Mm. I hear that. Wrapping us off with uh, Liverpool-Arsenal, which will be a really interesting game for a number of reasons. Will Liverpool sort of have patched up some of the issues they've had so far? Will Arsenal crumble here, or will they maybe sort of raise their game like they did against Liverpool towards the back end of last season? Lots of questions to be answered, but I think that ultimately Liverpool will roll over Arsenal 3-1. I think it's going to be 3-0. 3-0, so no- nothing for Arsenal, you reckon? Yeah, I think that, as I said, Arsenal look wobbly, and... Um... I, I don't think they're going to have as much fun against this defence and attack. As they did against, perhaps, you as know, Fulham. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I think that's that's also a fair assessment. It's, I, I was thinking about maybe going 4-1, but yeah, I, I could see Liverpool holding a clean sheet. And just because I think that that's going to be really important for them to, to maintain that clean sheet again after keeping one against Chelsea. Great. Well, that should be really fun to look at next week when we record. Uh, but that's all the time we've got this week. Rupert, thanks as always for chatting. Cam, thank you very much. And I will see you same time, same place next thanks week. Thanks for listening, guys. Thank you, guys. Bye. Armchair Analyst was recorded remotely by Cameron MacDonald and Rupert Meadows. The album artwork was provided by our good friend Amschel.